Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 31 as we continue our series in this book. Um, this past week on Wednesday night, it was just a great edifying gathering we had on the front lawn uh, for the prayer gathering. Uh, appreciate all those who came out to uh, maintain the guidelines we want to put in place. And so uh, as we kind of venture down this path of starting to reopen and what this might look like in different ways and capacities, um, we just appreciate your patience and support, and uh, just be sure to keep an eye on your email as we continually roll out updates as time goes by. But um, it was just good to be in the embodied presence of the church in, in even a, a small way, and looking forward to the days ahead. Well, we are now in the final quarter of the book of Exodus that we began back in January, uh, six months ago. In some ways, it feels like six years ago for all that has happened since we began. Um, but uh, this, this, just week after week, I am just reminded how foundational uh, the, this book of the Bible really is, right? That we, we firmly believe that all of the Bible is inspired, all 66 books. They're all profitable for teaching and for growing in the faith. But there, there are certain books uh, that kind of hold the structure for everything else in the Scripture. Where if you were to skip this book, you would be lost with the rest of the story. And, and Exodus is kind of one of those foundational structural books where you see the growth of God's people from a family to a nation, the, the rescue of that nation from slavery, the, the giving of the law, the formation of the tabernacle, right? Just all these kind of monumental events and rules and objects that the rest of the Bible will continually build upon. As we enter into this particular stretch of Exodus, I'm talking chapters 31 through chapters 34, um, they are kind of wedged between um, the, the, the giving of the instructions of the tabernacle that we saw in previous chapters, and then the actual building of the tabernacle that will come in later chapters. But in this section, as we will see over the next several weeks, chapters 31 to 34, it is deeply practical. It is at times horribly tragic, and then profoundly powerful all together. And it often gets skipped because it is wedged between these two portions of Scripture that people do tend to gloss over. So I want to take our time with them. And this morning we're just going to cover verses 1 through 11 of chapter 31. So I ask that you would follow along as we read. The Lord said to Moses, See, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I've filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahazamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I've given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely working, worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, 
according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Well, over the past three and a half years uh, since coming on as a senior pastor at Grace, we have had the opportunity here to expand our staff as the church has grown, Um, adding positions in all different areas like creative and tech to communications, to children's, to women's, to, in a couple weeks, adding a youth director, beginning a search uh, upon Pastor Jeff's departure of a full-time associate pastor. And by God's grace, up to this point, these hires have been uh, good ones for our church, despite uh, my and our inexperience in hiring and overseeing staff. Um, but, but there is a single phrase that I have tried to drive home with myself and each staff member as they come on. That at Grace Church, we aim to work hard and rest well to the glory of God. Not one or the other, but both. Work hard and rest well. And that phrase and the conviction behind that phrase comes from this chapter, Exodus 31. Verses 1 through 11, we're going to talk about work. And then verses 12 to 18 talks about rest, back to back, which we will focus upon next week. But God enables His people to work hard and rest well for His glory. You can't choose one. You need both. And so this morning, we will dig into the four aspects of the first half of that phrase. Work hard. Number one, God calls and equips His people to work. God calls and equips His people to work. So so after spending five chapters explaining the design of the tabernacle to Moses in great detail, I imagine some point along the line, Moses is uh, in the back of his mind thinking, how in the world is this going to happen, right? Have you been in that situation where kind of you're hearing somebody and you're like, yep, okay, got it, got it. In the back of the mind, there's a slow panic kind of starting to rise. Like, how is this going to happen? I don't know anybody who can do all this. How am I going to remember this? How am I going to get everybody in the right place to actually make this happen? Is this my job? Do I have to oversee it? I imagine Moses is just kind of struggling as he's hearing just chapter after chapter of instruction. And God apparently does not tell him until after all the instructions are given that, hey, by the way, I have called Bezalel and I have filled him with the Spirit of God And Bezalel will be the project manager of the tabernacle. And I have also called Aholiab to be his number one assistant, the vice project manager of the tabernacle. And just notice in the wording, right, that he doesn't say, oh, by the way, Bezalel and Aholiab, they already have all this ability. You just have to find them. But rather, he says, I have called and filled them. I have equipped them to do the things that need to be done for this tabernacle to be built so that I may dwell in the midst of my people. Back in chapter 25, we saw that God will use the contributions of the people, the voluntary contributions, as the raw material that will be used for the tabernacle 
And so now, too, He will use the giftings and abilities that He has given the people to build the tabernacle. But both find their source in God. The people have possessions because God ordered and providentially designed it to give them possessions. In the same way, the people have been gifted and skilled because God filled them. And we see that God calls His people to work. He could have just plopped the tabernacle down overnight like He did the manna, but no, He calls His people to work and build and operate this tabernacle as He has called them to. A couple weeks ago, when we kind of walked through the construction of the tabernacle, we saw how it it tells the story of God's cosmic redemption. That the tabernacle was an image that, that was looking back to Eden, where God dwelled in the midst of His people at creation. And then ultimately, it looks forward to Christ, through whom God will dwell with His people in the new creation. And in the Garden of Eden, before sin entered the world, before the creation was fractured, God called Adam and Eve to work. Genesis 2.15 The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Work is good. And the commitment to work hard is good. Okay, so pay attention closely here. I'm not doing a play on words. But, but when sin entered the world, um, the, the fall and the fracturing of creation um, made for hard work. It made work to be a toil. It made it to be frustrating. Right? That was the curse put upon Adam. But there's a difference between hard work and working hard. The fall made hard work. But, hear me, God had designed His people, Adam and Eve, to work hard, to approach their work with an ethic to work hard before sin. That work as that God designs it is, is, is satisfying in the midst of pouring yourself out for it. Um, maybe this past spring, having uh, spent more time at home than probably you ever had in springs of the past, um, I've heard from many that you have spent more time in the yard this year, um, gardening, cultivating, just spending time out there because, again, you just were home more often. And I imagine that you could testify on a certain point that, that, that work outside with your hands in the garden, cultivating and keeping it, is satisfying, yet also difficult, also hard, but, 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 but that the, the act of working hard and pouring yourself out, there, there's a satisfaction to that. There's, there's, a, there's a thought of God kind of creating you to do that, to, to pour yourself out for work. And it's true that God calls all His people, and, and here, specifically, Bezalel and Aholiab, to to work hard, and he equips them to do so. But, but notice how he equipped them. By, by filling them with the Spirit of God. It's another connection to Genesis 1 and, and creation in, in the garden. 
that we read there that the Spirit was present at creation, hovering over the waters, was, was the means through which God brought from uh, creation from chaos into order. And in the same way, the Spirit is the one who administers the gifts to God's people according to God's purposes. That this is why in the New Testament that Paul and Peter will say that each believer has been given a spiritual gift because each believer is filled with the Holy Spirit who administers the gifts. That the Spirit of God enables us to serve God's people for God's glory. Today, there's a lot of discussion about calling in our world. And and it can be a source of angst for many. I know it was for me um, for for a pretty long period of time. Where where is God calling me? What what is God calling me to do? It's amongst the most um, popular questions that I get from people. I'm, I'm trying to discern God's call in my life in this area or that. And often, it has to do with work. And so we can't kind of go through the whole kind of discussion now, but just for, for uh, suffice it to say that, that we generally view calling wrongly. Because we generally view it like the world views it. And so asking where am I called or what am I called to do, it's, it's not a bad question of trying to discern that. But we need to understand that beneath that question Here's our call on all of us, on every believer, that the calling on our life is to grow into the image of Jesus Christ. And as part of that, the calling is to work hard wherever God places us. So so calling is not a specific job. It's the way you do a specific job. It's not a certain role. It's the person you're becoming in the midst of that role. God calls you and equips you to work and work hard. Number two, God affirms all types of spirit-filled work. God affirms all types of spirit-filled work. So up to this point in the book of Exodus, the the kind of work that has been modeled and shown is what what I think we often typically associate with quote-unquote spirit-filled work. You you have Moses overcoming his fear to to speak boldly before Pharaoh and declare that he is to let God's people go. We have Aaron um, using the staff in his hand to carry out miracles before Pharaoh and his, uh, his associates. You have even Joshua in Exodus 17 leading an army of God's people to defeat God's enemies, the Amalekites. These are the kind of sensational types of work that, that, um, that, that people yearn for, right? Power and strength and, and the miraculous things, the sensational things. But here, God affirms Bezalel and Aholiab with a kind of spirit-filled work as artistic design, craftsmanship, intelligence, carving and setting stone. 
Verse 6, I have given to all able men ability to make the ark, the mercy seat, the curtains of the tent, the utensils, the tables, the lampstands, and on and on. So isn't it interesting that the most direct reference in this book to spirit-filled work is associated with the arts? Creativity. Design. Executing artistic ability. This is what was needed to construct the tent where God's glory would dwell. And I think it's true still today, which is why I'm bringing up this point, that, that, that there's certain kinds of work that get kind of considered secondary work. And that's often in an area of what we would call the arts. The, the perception that arts or artistic ability makes for a great hobby, but it's not wise to pursue as a job. And that's a, that's a worldly-driven mentality. And it's because often in that, in, in that field, there, there's a lack of money or, or maybe opportunity where it's more of a struggle there to support yourself or a family or, or whatever we associate with that mentality. But, 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 but that the, we, we often struggle to see the arts as spirit-filled work. And I dare say... The world in general, the church in particular, needs more artists. And it's not a new need, but one of old. Reformation theologian John Calvin in the 16th century, if you know anything about Calvin, he is not known to be an artist. He's a deep thinker, he's a speaker, he's a writer, he's, he's very linear in his kind of systematic personality. He says, quote, all the arts come from God and are to be respected as divine inventions. Uh, a turning point for me on this was early in 2017, uh, made, made my first hire here at Grace Church. It was uh, A.J. Graves. He's the position of our creative director. He's kind of a creative tech director. And uh, so it was like, again, the first time I ever hired anybody. And, and we read this book together. I'm forgetting the name of the book, but it was basically on the creative arts in the life of the church. And, and it talked about how the church needs artists. But beyond that, what was eye-opening for me was that, he's, that the, the author made the point that any position, including a pastor or any job outside the church, requires creativity. It requires a form of artistic design. That even writing sermons and how you construct your discernments is design. It's artistic. And if you remove artistic ability away from any job, you will suffer. And God affirms all types of spirit-filled work. And Bezalel is filled with the Spirit to build, to cut, to carve, to think, to construct this holy tent. Uh, last weekend, I returned back from visiting Rochelle's family in Wisconsin. And while out there, I had the opportunity to play uh, golf a couple of times with my brothers-in-law out there. And, and one round that we were playing, uh, my, my one brother-in-law's friend was joining us for uh, the round. And we were, uh, he, me and the friend were standing on the fairway of, you know, somewhere on the back nine, like the 15th hole. And, and there's this big house right off the fairway. Um, and, and kind of the backyard is up against the hole. 
And, and so I'm standing there and I make the comment like, man, how great would it be to like live in that house? Like that's an awesome location. Like you're just, your backyard is a golf course. And, and his friend um, gets this kind of look on his face and he goes, uh, yeah, you, you like that? Um, I actually built that house. And I, I kind of snapped him a look like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, like you, you built that house, and he's like, you know, a little sheepish about it. He's like, yeah, you know, I got out of the business, you know, about 10 years ago, but um, yeah, I, I, I built that one. It's, you know, it's, I like that one. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like, you just built that house. And I'm like looking at the house, and I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking about that. Like, how can that not be spirit-filled work? That the, the design, the construction, it is so impressive. I mean, I almost see that as more sensational than what I do. You know, if somebody asks I, what I do, I'm like, man, I, I don't know. I read a lot, and I speak a little, and that's my job. I'm always impressed with people who can just build things. And Exodus 31 shouts from the rooftop to the church today that all work can be spirit-filled work, insomuch that the work itself does not cause you to sin in order to accomplish it. Okay, so if you're an illegal drug dealer, even if you're a great one, not spirit-filled work. If you're in the porn industry of producing pornography, even if you're a great producer, not spirit-filled work. But all work outside of the jobs that cause you to sin in the work itself is spirit-filled. And I say this because I think just many of us have to search our minds and hearts on this. Because, again, we need to deconstruct how the world views work and understand that that worldly view often wrongly influences ours. That we need to see work through God's eyes, not the culture's eyes. Because when we look through the culture's eyes, we either get puffed up with pride because we think we're so awesome at work and the world thinks we're awesome, or we get dejected because where we work doesn't get the esteem and the applause from our culture. And I hear this in our area specifically, in the tension of this so much, that work can have such an outsized influence as to puffing us up or bringing us down where, where men often attach value of work to, to how much money they make attached to it. Or when they're talking to somebody, say, hey, what do you do for a living, right? One of the first questions we ask somebody when we meet them. And, and we know that our answer is going to impact and shape how they first think about us. How much money does that job make? What's that title on your LinkedIn page? I know from women who are career-driven but unfortunately face often low ceilings at their employers because um, both in money and title just because they are women and how much of a struggle that that is, how unfair it is. I hear a lot from moms who feel guilty whether they are working, working or not working. Right? And our church has uh, plenty that are split, but, but we have moms who don't have a vocational job. And when, when somebody asks them, what did they do? They say, oh, I just stay home. I'm not a working mom. And, and the guilt that says, well, like other moms are, and they can do both, but I can't. I just stay home. 
And on the other side, um, working moms feel bad in comparing themselves to the, again, stay-at-home moms because they aren't with their kids as much. And, and then there's this perception that they're, maybe they're selfish because they want a career and, and just being a mom isn't good enough for them. Or they want to, but they can't afford to just be home, and so they need to work. And on both sides, there is this just massive weight of guilt and it's because of the way the world views work. And they are lies of the devil, and they are crushing. And, and, and so again, we just through God's eyes, we have to level the playing field. That in God's eyes, spirit-filled work is not limited to a kind that just gets you a paycheck. Or it's not limited to a kind that, that uh, either people in the church or outside the church would see as impressive, or the norm, or the, the best option. Church, you don't need the world to validate your work. God validates your work, whether there's a paycheck attached to it or not. Because the one who created the world sees you and affirms you and fills you with the Spirit to do all kinds of work. So fight back against the comparing game. Just don't do it. The Spirit in you can overpower the devil tempting you to compare yourself to others and then measure your worth and happiness by it. The New Testament will specifically apply the same concept to work within the church amongst the body of Christ. A church where um, if there's certain roles and there's certain gifts that kind of get elevated as the, the good ones, the best ones, where everybody should be pursuing these same gifts, that is a church that ultimately will be ineffective in carrying out its mission to make disciples. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 17 through 20. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Peter also will speak in his letters of, of, of speaking gifts and serving gifts and, and how both are needed. And so the church is also this kind of level playing field before the eyes of God where you have all kind of different gifts and all different members pursuing one mission, one body. And so just personally, you, you know something I love seeing when we are in normal times, we're able to gather? I love when I see like business owners, CEOs, men and women, serving on the nursery, laying on the ground, playing with two-year-olds. I love when I see retired men and women taking time to disciple younger men and women, whether through a ministry or just doing it organically on their own. Regardless of how the world views and affirms work, when you come into the body of Christ, everyone's on the same page, serving in different capacities for one unified mission. To help one another know Jesus and make him known. The ground is always level at the cross, and it should always be level in the church, where God affirms all types of spirit-filled work. That's number two. Let's move to number three. God cares about work process over work results. Let me say it again. God cares about work process over work results. 
So for all the detail that God gave for the various elements of the tabernacle in the previous chapters, we still don't completely know what the tabernacle actually looks like. If you tried to recreate that tent based upon just God's instructions, it would be incomplete. So anytime you see a picture of the tabernacle, that is what people project it might have looked like because we don't have every detail from God's instructions. Which means either Moses did not record everything he heard from God or, more likely, he, God left some decisions to be made by men like Bezalel and Holiab. That God delegated not just tasks, but authority to these spirit-filled men to make some important decisions themselves as to how this will work and look. Why? Why would God do that? The reason is that so they would take some ownership. That they would have to work hard in the process of approaching this work and not just worry about the end result. That they would have to be guided by the Holy Spirit in the process. And this is, a, I think, a key point in this chapter that over, often gets overlooked. And yet it tells us that God cares more about how we work than what we do in our work. You hear that? That God cares more about how we work than just what we do for our work. Because if all good work is spirit-filled, then to work hard is to care about the process, not just the result. That's a big part that I emphasize to our staff as often as I can, that God cares about the process, not just what comes on the other end, but the process of how we get there. Last series in our, um, oh, sorry, last summer in our sermon series in the book of Proverbs, we, we spent an entire week looking at the wisdom of work that you can find on our website if you want to go back and listen. But, but each topic in the book of Proverbs has um, a kind of a, a foolish counterpart and, and for the wisdom of work, the, the foolish counterpart is the folly of laziness. In fact, if you were to aggregate all the verses in Proverbs on um, these two topics, you would find that for every um, proverb about diligence in work, there are about three verses for laziness. Proverbs 21, 26. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. A lazy person does not love life enough to work hard for it. A lazy person doesn't care or experience the dignity of work that we have been designed with. Laziness wants all the beneficial results of work without having to go through the process of work. And the tabernacle shows us that not only does God have high standards for work, but he cares about how you go about that work. And your witness as a representative of God in this world is found more often in the processes than it is in the results. So a couple of just practical questions for you for application for your work, whether that's unpaid or paid work. How does being a Christian impact the way you do your work? Have you ever thought deeply on this? Of not just what you do, but how does a Christian influence how you do what you do? 
How does the Holy Spirit within you impact and shape your approach to work? Let me ask it another way. If you were not a believer, meaning if you did not have the Holy Spirit within you, what would be different about your work? Or are you what Pastor Tony Merida calls a, quote, mechanical Christian? Just going through the motions, but never considering or tapping into spirit-driven power. Another question. Does your attitude at work serve as a witness for Christ to those around you? Or do you fall into the trap of joining into a chorus of people who groan and complain about your boss or your coworkers, or, or not even are you joining? You're kind of leading it. You're just always known for just nitpicking and complaining and, oh my gosh, can we have to do this? And why aren't we doing it that way? Do you often complain about your kids to other parents? How much easier life would be without them? Or why can't they just get it already? I've told them a million times. How does your process and attitude at work reflect the fact that you're filled with the Holy Spirit? How does what you say, or many times what you don't say, when everyone else is saying certain things, what does that reveal about the Spirit within you? Holy Spirit, again, in the life of believers today, is generally spoken about in sensational terms. When, when you do something groundbreaking or, or big, then you're really driven by the Spirit, or it's a public sensational act. But the reality is, more often, in the Bible, being Spirit-filled is an approach to life that seeks to walk in ordinary, faithful obedience to God, day by day. This is what Paul means when he says, be filled with the Spirit. Just equipping ordinary, faithful obedience. Bezalel was filled with the Spirit. And you know what it led to? Designing curtains. Carving wood. Having the knowledge to delegate well as a project manager and to work hard day after day. The process of spirit-filled work not only generally leads to good work, but it's also a process that promotes to the world a love for God and a love for neighbor. That's evident for anybody who's watching. Number four, God purposes work for his glory. God purposes work for his glory. The final phrase of this passage is revealing. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Well, what did God command of Moses? The instructions on building the tabernacle. Why was there need for a tabernacle? It would be the place where God's presence would dwell, where sacrifices are made to atone for the sins of Israel, where the covenant would be kept between God and His people, and it would be the visual, embodied reminder that God rescued this nation from slavery so that they might worship and glorify His name. So back to Bezalel and Holiab. What, what is it that they, quote, shall do in that final phrase? What they shall do is do work 
that is purposed for the glory of God. All good, hard work in this world is done for the glory of God, to make much of his glorious grace. When sin entered the world and fractured the universe, work not only became a toil filled with frustration at times, but work became an idol in and of itself, where we in a sin nature, are drawn to viewing work not as a gift from God, but as a replacement for God, where we turn to work itself to provide our meaning, to provide our identity, to provide our foundational joy, to define us. And when that's the case, one of two things will happen. You'll be, again, puffed up with pride or downcast in dejection based upon the performance of your work. Working hard is a great gift, but a terrible God. And when we orient our approach to work as a means to glorify God, we keep it in its rightful place. At church, work does not define you. God defines you. Work can't save you. God saves you. Work can't keep you. God keeps you. And the question we all face each morning when we wake up is this. Will we use our gifts to glorify God or glorify ourselves? This is the question all of Israel faced. And as we'll see in a couple weeks, tragically, Israel will choose first to glorify themselves in the form of golden calf. They would sin, that is, they would choose self-glory and the gifts that they have been given by God and the contributions they have been given and possessions they have given, uh, been given by God to form and create and shape an idol for their own glory. And God, even knowing that would happen, still called them to do this. Why? Because he also knew he would atone for that sin and he would give them a second chance. Jesus, too, had a calling. Jesus was called to work and keep his creation when he took on flesh. And he saw it through by going to the cross and dying for the sin of those who once chose self-glory, but now would believe in him. The cross is the place where bad work is exposed, and the cross is the place where bad work is atoned for. And for those who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus, we are generated by the Spirit regenerated by the Spirit of God, filled and equipped to work hard for His glory. So Christians, men, we should be the best workers in the world as ones who neither hate work nor idolize work because we are able and equipped to work hard for the glory of God and as a witness to the world to declare that the most important work that has ever needed to be done has been done at the cross. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for just the deeply practical passages in the Bible, Lord, that take just um, truth that we can so easily apply to our lives. And so I pray that um, this single truth found in Exodus 31 would just apply to all of us in the way that we need to see it applied to our lives, Lord. I pray that we'd be free to confess where we need to confess and that we would be assured where we need to be assured. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for the work that he has done and that by that work, how we have been equipped to carry out the work you have for us in this world. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.